0: This podcast is brought to you by Burl Audio. Get it right the first
1: time. Learn more at BurlAudio.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. We first interviewed producer and engineer Joel Hamilton back in 2011 in Tape Op issue number 85. Joel has worked on records with Elvis Costello, Nora Jones, Highly Suspect, Pretty Lights, Iggy Pop, The Black Keys, Matis Yahoo, Dub Trio, Bonobo, and the list goes on. Online publisher Jeff Stanfield has worked on several projects with Joel going back a decade, so he decided to give him a call and have him go on the record about teaching in India, Thoughts in Asymmetry, and a recent project with Rick Rubin and Paul McCartney. Enjoy!
0: I wanted to just sort of jump into something more recent rather than, you know, try to go through your, your history. And, you know, you and I were chatting the other day about uh, you teaching a course in India. And I thought that the subject matter was interesting. And I would love to just hear a, how that came about, because that's a pretty uh, great opportunity and fun and, and different. But also just what your approach was and, and what you what you were discussing and
2: trying to pass on to the students well it was it was something that actually started when i I was asked to go up and be one of the visiting artists up at berkeley and and i had I had been formulating this this kind of not even formulating i've been trying to figure out how to describe what the hell better looks like. Because I started to recognize, like, what what would I want somebody to tell me? I mean, it's it's almost a cliche in the sense of when you're put in the position to teach that you're like, what what would I wish somebody had told me when I was 19? You know that type of thing, and and all of a sudden I I started to recognize just just through experience that I wanted to know how to recognize better and and how kind of it's such a weird moving target you know and 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 how it's why it's so impossible to to do these weird performative video kind of like watch the guy mix type of things and they're like, I just smash it through the Thingamabobber five thousand, and then the drums are like, blah, you know, and I kick it in the face with my other compressor, you know, and it's always weirdly like rugged and you know, bordering on misogyny type of agro mixer guy stuff, and it's I'm I I kind of wondered I always wondered like what what do you what do you cherry pick from that type of thing. That that actually helps you move forward in your own career. The like the some of the most informative times for me were sitting with guys like John Agniello, you know, sitting over at, at water while he was working or something, and then just chatting about kind of life and more conceptual stuff of how he guides things in rather than like you know, what ratio the compressor was that was on the snare drum. And so I found myself more inspired by things like that because of the fact. That much like we build a a moral compass through conversations with people that we respect, we don't say, Hi, Jeff, I respect the work you do. How should I do what you do? You know, we, we don't say that in life either. We're not like, hey, priest or parent or uncle or cool older brother or whatever it is. How do I be cool? How do I get cool friends? Like it never works that way. It's it's so much more about sort of seeing a general way of coming at situations and 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 building what we ultimately call a moral compass, because then it's almost as though ethics are your moral compass being implemented, right? Like if it's the tool and then you're forced with a decision of better or worse, do I hang out with the kid who's really high and going to drive me home or do I wait or do I walk? You know, you make those decisions when you don't have somebody else to guide you based on something in you. And and for me, that's the kind of thing that that started to really matter. When I was standing there, or when I'm sitting here turning like a, a shelving EQ at 15K on a vocal, it's like, we've all done it. You turn it up, and it gets better, better, better. And then you fly right past it, and it gets worse again. You know, So it's like, how do you wind up on this tiny island of better in a sea of worse that seems to extend in every direction to infinity? It's it's a tiny little spot that we find in track by track, and so this this entire course kind of developed out of the notion that I wanted to be able to show up at Berkeley and not just have a performative moment where this is how I move around the the eighty eight, you know, this is how I move around the eighty eight RS with a million channels, and just EQ everything quickly and try to get a good listener happening. It's why I stop. When I do, when you're turning something, like what are you listening for? And, and how there's this kind of fractal nature to it where the, the overall tilt of the mix determined by the mid-range information. You know, if you walked in the room and I had a vocal soloed, which I almost never would, but if I just had a main vocal soloed and you walked in the room, you, you would be able to make a judgment like, wow, that's bright or dark, but relative to what? you know and it's it's always relative to that mid information that mid range information lets us know when it seems balanced again and so then pull out the scope here and we wind up with the mid range of an entire mix informing whether we have too much low or too much high and that that interested me again and again and again because ultimately it's like a gut feeling You know, like sure, we can we can reaffirm it with VUs or RTAs or you know whatever we use as sort of a visual piece of visual feedback that makes us feel okay about what ultimately started as a gut decision. Um, But so it was it was figuring out how to put labels on those moments, not simply quantify it. Every time somebody tries to quantify it, we get back to saying three dB at fifteen k. You know, that's quantifying it. And and for me, I just wanted to hang some labels on things that we all do. When we're presented with three choices on a menu, we think one's better than the other. There's always going to be a better. Um, this is the part of the conversation
0: that's so fun and interesting, right? Is that it's all, you know, it's like you're a boxer, right? You're always having to react to whatever the situation is. And you may have a good sense of, who you're facing in the ring, based on what you know about them and and their weight and their the length of their arm and all of these things, but they may have you know they may present you with something that you haven't seen before, and therefore you're you you know you have a reaction to that, um, and it and either you you know <laughs> you come out of it unscathed or somebody clocks you and breaks your jaw. Yeah. So, you know the the idea. I mean, I think it's an endless, it's an endless pursuit to some degree, because you're talking about, you know, this mid-range information that's essentially defined and fixed by what is acceptable in terms of frequency. Is this, is this correct?
2: Yeah, well, well, the thing is, is it's, it's just seeking to use a filter, like a sort of logic filter, like. Occam's razor, Hanlon's razor, the Turing test, any of these things that have seemingly endless outcomes, right? And yet it's just rendered down to an incredibly simple kind of logic filter. And for me, it became this hierarchical filter. Like when we're looking at better, at the top is compositional intention. this, And then in the middle is production vision. How are we going to make compositional intention happen and in the real world and be able to be shared with other people? And then the engineering end of it, which follows compositional intention, excuse me, which follows production vision and compositional intention in that order with compositional intent at the top. Because then we wind up with a really easy way of judging any particular moment when there's Dents and scratches in the land speeder when we're first presented with a land speeder, it's like, why are those there? You know, like what's better in that case? Better is asking the question does it support the na- overarching narrative, which would be our compositional intentions? It's the, it's the intent of the entire story. Does it support the idea that somebody comes from humble beginnings? when we're first introduced to this particular character, of course it does. It'd be just as easy. They had to make it. You can't just go get an old landspeeder and film that. You know what I mean? There, there wasn't one laying around. So somebody had to design every single dent and scratch in the service of the narrative. I mean, that's the thing. And for me, when it's in the service of compositional intention, then the production choice is, quote, right it isn't just always ultimately subjective forever. Like, you can do anything, bro. It's music, bro. It's art. You know, and it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't continue on to infinity in that sense. If there is a direction determined by the compositional intention, then there has to be a right or a wrong direction to arrive there. So we can start to filter out ideas. Is it a rock song? Okay, probably isn't flute. You know what I'm saying? Like immediately, that's like, we just start there. All of a sudden, something becomes right or wrong, given the number of criteria. Think about it. If there was a thousand people in the room and I said, who was born on a Monday? Then I said, who was born to a mom named Erica? And then I said, who was this? And I increased the criteria, hands would go down. And yet it's seemingly like we were all born. You know, If I started with the first question, who here was born? So increasing the criteria definitely gets us to a point. Sure. There's going to finally be one person in the room with their hand up. You know what I mean? And that would be quote the right one if it follows a, a destination that I was looking to achieve. It's sort of putting a a framework around instinct. Yeah. Well, I mean, look at the number of times that people render, uh, like a a a Lead Belly song, and then they transcribe it and analyze it and look at note choice and we see 8 million guitar magazine articles about it or you know whatever it is and it just came blasting out of the person on that day maybe it was comped in a later thing if it was like Van Halen and not Lead Belly you know what I mean but it was definitely one of maybe a minimal number of takes if not the only take you know of that particular solo if it was a Lead Belly type of song and yet then we can analyze it ad nauseum as in retrospect, did it support what he was talking about in the verse and the chorus? Probably because the gesture outweighed anything in that case. You know what I mean? It wasn't about the fidelity, it wasn't about anything, but just like gesturally, it supported my baby done left me. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? And that's that. I mean, but so, but we can render that down to something that actually has scale and scope. And you know it's not infinite; there weren't infinite number of note combinations sure. that would have supported that that narrative you know i mean and so it's an again it can be annoyingly sort of reductive, but at the same time it's 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 when the sculptor first in the literal sense sets a toe in stone then you can run out of headroom in the literal sense because you've got a fixed finite amount of marble to work with. And so if you make, it's either a sculpture with a big giant toe or a weirdly tiny head, you know what I mean? Because we then would know what it was supposed to look like based on the scale of the finger or the toe. So it's like the pinky can then define what the whole is supposed to be, what the whole human form is supposed to look like. And we know that intuitively because we can look around. The same way we know what sad sounds like. You know, humans read each other. If you and I were walking up the street in, in Istanbul, we would know from 16 blocks away, and neither of us speak Turkish, whether we were walking towards something threatening or something okay. Is it a wedding getting out or is it a riot? Because of the sound humans make. You know what I mean? Right. It's like we would know what was going on to a certain degree based on the timbre. And so, again, for me, that means that we're able to sense that and then reduce the number of timbres that actually support it. Are we trying to say it's a party or are we trying to say it's a riot? Because one has a particular sound that other humans are going to respond to and the other one doesn't. If we're saying riot, you know, if it sounds like a party, we missed the mark. It's quote wrong. Yeah. or we can try to do what every younger artist does which is like basically supply like a powerpoint presentation based on how like well maybe this party turned into a fight bro and somebody's happy to go to war you know or whatever <laughs> that's where like the artist forever tries to just say that it's like open ended forever but it it doesn't seem to work that way for humans you know like weddings right. just don't sound like fights and vice versa you know having having good instincts and
0: and experience leads you to a conclusion for sure let's move on a little bit because there's a couple other things that I always just uh love talking to you about and and one of them is um is asymmetry
2: i mean well i mean because there is balance in a an architectural form that has a cantilevered deck sticking out to the point where it looks almost precariously poised on the sixth floor and it sticks way out and if you don't have an understanding that the weight of the building anchors that, like so it's never going to tip into the street, it's like then it looks precarious to you. And and I think uh, having a fundamental understanding of balance doesn't require symmetry. You know, there can be asymmetrical balance. Look at, look at trap, like especially early trappy stuff where there's like really crazy chirpy high-end and then vocal, and that's kind of all that's happening. And we wind up, again, with a mid-range fulcrum. If it's like a seesaw, and you're going to put a 5-pound weight to the right of it and a 50-pound weight to the left, you can still make that balance if you're in charge of moving the fulcrum to where those things will stay in a balanced position. But it's not going to be symmetrical. You can't put that fulcrum right in the center and expect that to hang in space correctly. So, like, for me we wind up creating these things. It's almost like a, the, the physical analogy would be something like a calder, like a giant, you know, windmill or mobile type of thing, where there's like a couple gigantic pieces over to the left and then a whole lot of small ones hanging to the right. And it hangs perfectly above the, you know, it doesn't fall on anybody out at JFK. But the, it, it interests me so much that, that my favorite pieces of music are, are angular. Like there's something that reaches out and grabs you, you know. I don't want it to just go by. It's it's I mean, all of my favorite stuff, whether it it's starting with things like the Beatles, where there's like a rubber ducky noise that flies by or whatever. Like that didn't need to be there. You know what I mean? Like what 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 was what did that do other than become immediately a thing that you knew what the reference was immediately? Right. You know, what did it do in the song and makes it like crazy or whatever. And, and that, that interests me, like asymmetrical balance is a really important part of mixing, I think on a track by track basis and then an overall tilt type of basis. Again, we're back to the fractal nature of it. You can zoom in as much as you want and it looks just like the big thing, only real little and yes. vice versa.
0: Yeah. The cantilever idea is that, you know, the other half of that cantilever is inside the building.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Something is balancing it is the point. And that's why I went to the like seesaw with five pounds and 50 pounds. It's just the part that you, you know, you, you can't, you can't expect symmetry when you're looking for balance. If the pieces aren't the same weight. Yeah. You know, you can't expect that to balance. You have to figure out how to cantilever at that
0: point. Can you give me an example of like two different things that would maybe not make sense that just
2: that are supplying the, those weights? Sure. I mean, the fact that we can have the obvious one would be a low and high end split, but then even sometimes where you have something that's like a ridiculously tiny egg shaker turned up a lot and panned left against an electric guitar that's panned to the right and then figuring out the sort of relative presence level of each one. So they feel the same distance from the listener and it winds up feeling not right heavy, even though there's a whole bunch of barking guitar happening over to the right and this tiny little egg shaker to the left. But when you've got the way it hangs in space, when you put on headphones and they feel the same distance from the listener, it's, it's that kind of thing where the playing with the range of the information, it's almost like metadata. Do you know what I mean? Where like, it's what, it's what the, the sound is saying other than just its frequencies, you know, like if you have something hold a position in space rather than telling it to occupy the space it existed in the real world, you know, you, you hang it in a place in the picture where it's right up in the foreground, it looks bigger. I mean, we're on, we're on FaceTime right now and right just now my hand got exactly zero inches closer to your face, but in a representational way, it was much larger than my face. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, and so in my opinion, using sounds more as kind of understanding that every sound that we capture becomes a metaphor. It's no longer a snare drum. It's a representational kind of impulse that says snare drum to the listener. The same as me saying the word snare drum right now. We use the rules of the English language. I make a noise with my mouth and then you know what I'm talking about. It's the same idea. So understanding that if we disconnect that sort of intrinsic meaning from its representational meaning, we can put a a shaker right up close to the camera, in quotes, and wind up with something that, that occupies a lot of space to the left with then like a Marshall 4x12 to the right that physically, quote, in the real world, occupies obviously way more space and we can find balance between the speakers. Sure. You know, but that that works frequency wise top to bottom as well, finding a way to give the illusion of physicality based on the way you imagine something to sound. Like when I had to mix things for a cartoon, let's say and and it was like a uh, a, a rabbit punching a robot, right? It was this particular sort of ad spot that I had to do, and I had to create the sound of it and think about how lame it would be to get a rabbit or a kangaroo whatever to punch a robot and what it would sound like you know compared to what i wound up doing which was like a kick drum beater on like a, a like pots and pans to get the metal clank but then was sort of like an explosion sample layered in behind it because contextually the the rabbit won the fight. So that was like the knockout punch. And it can't just go ding unless it's satirical. You know, that would give it a whole new context. Right. You know, so again, to me, it's like finding balance between not just frequencies, but between the realistic expectation, uh, between reality and expectation. You know?
0: I feel like there are a lot of records coming out these days, where the traditional roles of things, for example, kick drum, what are the other characters that could assume the 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 role of a kick drum? It's somebody like A. G. Cook. I mean, they take the ideas of what those roles would be, but they're
2: not those characters. Absolutely, sure, but anchored anchored to what came before it. Though. Yeah, of course. Like yeah, it I, only it only feels fresh based on a departure. Right, You know what I'm saying? Like where something's operating, quote, as the kick drum that's unexpected. You know, the same way that like a hi-yah in a Timberland track instead of a snare all of a sudden was super cool in a Missy Elliott song. You know what I mean? Like that's because it was a departure from hearing snare drum for the eight billionth time, you know, on the twos and fours, you know?
0: Yeah. One of the things that I've always appreciated about being in the room with you was that uh, you have... One of the most extensive gear collections I've ever seen. You've got from from modular synthesis to you know vintage compressors, new stuff. You, you use plugins. You have a great microphone collection. You value a room. You you know all of the things that are sort of based around traditional recording, but then. I remember at one point saying something about, like, well, maybe we could just get something that's a little, you know, you know, it's just a, a room vibe, and, and Francisco basically racing into a box of broken microphones and plugging it in and literally throwing it in the corner with a symbol
2: over it. That sounds about right.
0: Rather than trying to be, you know, a, a white coat lab technician, you know, going and doing the patching the echo in the other room, sort of impulsive, and reactionary
2: techniques to add color or add a new palette yeah it's interesting that for me i started to recognize that that's the first filter you know as we sort of make a a record jump through a series of filters in the literal sense and figuratively it's sort of like the the inherent room response is the first filter you know and then and then you throw a room mic up or you throw up a mic in the room that's that's kind of you know it's a cliche at this point that you wind up wanting to print the drummer's talk back you know or you want to wind up printing the bass player's talk back as a drum ambient mic the 58 that's like aimed diagonally towards the ceiling and changes song to song because they dragged it around the room, you know, or whatever, it's sort of the wild card ambient mic and its relationship to the mics that you sort of painstakingly or not set up. I mean, there's been times where, speaking of Francisco, there's been times where Francisco will have the mics on stands and I'm like such a doofus that I'll have my head down and I'm like pushing up faders and going like, you know, the, the rack tom sounds cool, but there's like a lot of symbol in it. And he's like, I didn't even put it on the drum yet. And I look up and it's like five feet back from the kit ran in some random space. And, and it's amazing where it's like, wow, okay, that's information that you can then apply to the next setup though. Like, wow, maybe something right there pulled back five feet and kind of peeking over the rack tom. And it's going to look like we forgot to set it up in the right place you know i got flown all the way to australia to do a record where when i was done setting up i watched the band look at each other like we've made an incredibly big mistake <laughs> <laughs> they're like i don't think he knows where the music comes out of because <laughs> <instrument." laughs> there was stuff just like a conga where i'd put a d12 like under it sideways on the floor because i ran out of stands like and this is in like a gigantic like mega studio and i just was like nah, i can't really fit a stand under there i'll just tape it to the floor and uh and just all these random ass things set up and and Amazingly, though, it was like after hearing playback, things got a lot better. You know, it's, it's funny how we sort of judge things based on this, you know, 1989 cover of Mix magazine, like Omar Hakim's drum set with, you know, all the expected microphones of a big studio in that era. It's sort of that'll never die the same way the 77 is kind of the microphone button on a phone right you know like it's the the it just became the international symbol for that in the recording community it's so interesting that that setup with like a pair of something perfectly on overheads and all of this stuff that became sort of the setup for drums since we're talking about those specifically and man there's every every great record Jim Scott said it to us right right before we went out to work at Shangri-La it was like he's like you know it was never known for its sonic excellence, but every great record that you and I love has been guys just like you and I dealing with it. And it, and that stuck with me so much, the fact that it's so true. All my favorite records were done in places that just were kind of funky, you know, kind of weird response in the room, and you find that one corner that you take ownership of, like that you like that position in there. You know, you like what you're getting from some freaky little corner, even if it's at Avatar or somewhere legendary, you find some little freaky thing like the talkback, like a 635, thrown on the floor somewhere, and it starts to sound like that day. You know yeah. what I mean? I don't know. I, I think identity is much more impor- important than overall frequency response, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Textural, textural identity is, is everything.
0: You reminded me, I'm not going to let you go quite yet, unless you absolutely have to. Um, You reminded me of something um, that we were going to chat about, and that was that recently you did go work with uh, Paul McCartney and Rick Rubin on a project, and I'd love to hear about that.
2: Yeah, Francisco and and Gino and I loaded up a couple of Pro Tools rigs, and we went out to this... um, this church that was being refurbed in Sag Harbor out in Long Island. So we went and stayed out there. And for for a handful of days, we got to be in the in the room while we set up a playback rig that was feeding a rented little Neve console that was gorgeous. And the playback rig had... We had all the multitracks of every Beatles song that they asked for. So between Rick and, and Paul... We got to hear, you know, all the individual tracks for, you name it, Dear Prudence, She Loves You, you know what I mean? Like everything up through Wings included. So we heard, you know, Live and Let Die, the multi-tracks, and then amazingly got to track Paul playing it on an upright piano. Or no, Maybe I'm Amazed. He went over and sat at this little upright, this little Yamaha upright that we had in there, and he played Maybe I'm Amazed and showed basically like how he wrote it and then played it. And... It was amazing to tie all of this in, in the sense that that came on the heels of teaching the notion that people with an instinctive kind of sense of better, they don't need 8 million choices in the room, you know, like there was Lucy in the sky would have been Lucy in the sky, no matter what organ they found in the hallway that day. And Paul figured out that little line based on what came out of that Lowry organ but it would have been it would have been Lucy in the Sky still because we heard it without it. I mean, we got to hear it with just sort of John's acoustic guitar, without the intro in it. Besides John's uh, headphone bleed, and it was like it was amazing to hear John Lennon. I'm saying it like I know him. It's just tedious for me to say John Lennon every time. But but the you know to hear him warming up, he was getting the first note. You know, and so you hear him going like, "Ah, ah, ah!" <laughs> again as the as the keyboard starts, and and it's just like you could hear that those guys, they all shared, in Paul's words, they sort of shared the vision of what would make the song better, and whether it was another take or a different sound you know, whatever it was, when he was playing the the Rickenbacker, you know, and he's playing the Rickenbacker on Dear Prudence and he talked about how he, they they cranked the mids on one of the, the uh, channels and ran out of mid to give, so they then went to the next channel and turned up the mids again and then ran into a third channel and whatever it was, turned up the mids again or the low end on that one. But they kept jumpering, you know, more EQs, just putting them in series. And It's because it kept getting better in quotes because he was playing double stops, you know, in the big heavy part at the end. And, and, and they wanted that clarity in his words. And so, and the Rick is so not that on its own, you know, and he's playing these like super heavy, like picked double stops at the end of that track. It's so heavy. Um, and it was just so inspiring to have these, these concepts floating around and then hear guys who are responsible together for like, a real significant percentage of all the records ever sold on the face of planet Earth, you know? Taught, like And reaffirming this concept that there there was a path to better in that case, you know? It wasn't just like, well, that's cool, that's my part. You know, I just played my part with my Rickenbacker or with my Hoffner or whatever. It was like those were the tools at hand, and then pursuing better was the important part of that, you know? What made it really... What it, what we know it to be today, was that rather than the fact that it was an EMI EQ. You know what I mean, without a doubt. And so I, I love the, you know, the awareness of these topologies in a, in a particular piece of gear, and then just going at better and seeing what that particular piece of gear gives you, and then changing pieces of gear if it doesn't give you better. You know, maybe a ten seventy three does three K better than the ssl does so then you catalog that in your brain and go after it with something else um but anyway the the real takeaway from from having the privilege to be in the room with with rick rubin and paul mccartney was was really seeing that in its purest form going at better is is what makes things last you know yeah it's really what makes it last awesome Um, that seems like a good place to call it, for sure. That's why that's why I paused and looked for the right chunk of poetry to land on you. You're a pro, man. <laughs> Beautiful, absolute professional. Beauty. <laughs> totally, totally. I'm like the Barbara Walters of EMI discussions.
0: Yeah. Well. Yeah. Except for. Never mind. Every. 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 every, every except for. <laughs> except for everything. Yes. but That's okay. All right, man. Well, hey, man, it's it's great to see you.
1: Thanks for listening. Find us online at tapepop.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time.